0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with aging potential. Robert Joseph was one of the key figures in what he likes to call the summer of love for wine in the late 1980s, setting up Wine Magazine and the International Wine Challenge. He now divides his time between writing, consultancy, and making his own wines in the Languedoc and Georgia. Our amusing and insightful chat covered everything from influencers to wine brands, AI, to his upbringing in a family hotel. Hello, Robert, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for
1: having me. Um, I've caught you in
0: this country for once,
1: haven't I? Uh, You have, and uh, I'm off again this week, and I don't even remember where I'm going, but it's going to involve Germany
0: and Paris and Holland and other places. I mean, I I want your air miles, I think. Maybe not your carbon Uh, footprint.
1: Funnily enough, I'm trying to cut them down, and the air miles aren't really working, and I'm happy not to have them, to be honest. It's nothing to boast about. I, I take trains when I can
0: good idea lots of so much to talk to you about i mean you just had this unbelievable career covering lots of aspects of the wine trade really but let, let's begin with a bit of family background because you didn't grow up in a wine region but you did grow up around wine in a sense just tell us about your parents and what they did
1: my parents accidentally ended up owning a hotel they used to dabble in property um they had a couple of flats they rented out in london which van morrison and doris lessing were both uh, tenants <laughs> um and there was a property in sussex which was um, a large building they thought they could do something with they didn't have the money they got rich partners who invested the money in the rich partners. Wanted a luxury hotel. My parents had no background in this at all, and then the the rich partners dropped out within a year, and my parents were left holding the baby. So I grew up with this um, in this extraordinary glamorous place that was in the Good Food Guide and all the rest, um, surrounded by food and drink and glamorous people near Gatwick Airport.
0: And, and how did that background in the hotel trade um, affect your perspective on wine? I mean, you know, you used to dealing with punters for a start.
1: Well, I was 10 or 11 years old when they started and so I, I collected stamps only child, sort of sad thing to do and the labels on the bottles struck me like being, they were like stamps, you know, what, does, what lies behind this gold label or black label or whatever and that really um, became a sort of focus of interest and uh, alongside, I wasn't very good in the kitchen, I, I got bored doing the same dish over and over again, I was a pretty crap barman because i couldn't forget as i not remember there was six whiskeys and three gins or vice versa i was a pretty clumsy waiter <laughs> um so you know the wine the wine cellar looked good also um it was days when me a lot of air crew who were either moonlighting or or actually being put into the hotel to stay overnight before flying and you know only child i was all these incredibly glamorous women young women and I, there i was like a dog with his tongue hanging up uh into my teens and I had the key to the wine cellar. So, you know, there, there was a lot going on
0: there. <laughs> Tell us about Mario, your first your first wine mentor. He was working for you, wasn't he? I
1: think everybody has a mentor. In my case, it wasn't my parents. They drank wine, but not that often. They didn't know much about it. But we had this Italian uh, maitre d' in those days. Um, sommeliers were far rarer than they are now, but he knew a certain amount about wine. Came from Naples, I think. And he gave me the drinks. He saw I was interested and he let me have the dregs of of wines that people um, had been tasting or had been drinking, and explained things as as well as he could. Mm. And somebody, I think it was my parents, gave me the first Hugh Johnson book, which Mm. I still think called Wine. Which I still think is one of the great wine books uh, in the world. An
0: amazing book, isn't it? Yeah, mm. I mean, you did a holiday job in Champagne, I think, in your teens.
1: That was a, that was extraordinary because there I was fifteen years old, and that taught me one thing, which was extraordinary. Because I thought wine was very glamorous, and I fell in love very briefly with the daughter of um, somebody on the on the bottling line. Went to her place for dinner. With her family and they were drinking litre bottles from, of southern French wine with plastic caps. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, actually, and when I lived in Burgundy later on, the same thing applied. The idea of all these Burgundians sitting down drinking Merceau, no, they're drinking yeah. junk wine from southern France.
0: I mean, you mentioned Burgundy because that was in your gap year. And I like your line that you say you're still on a gap year <laughs> now in your 60s. But I mean, what took you there and how did you meet Becky Wasserman, who's this very famous? Um, I think she started out as a barrel broker, didn't she? and then, And then sort of. Mo- moved into selling wine in the states if I'm yeah,
1: so basically, um, I went on a trip around France with the, the, the then love of my life, and I knew a certain amount about Bordeaux because I'd read a few books about it, and I, didn't, I wasn't excited by Bordeaux. Burgundy was, com- was confusing, and it still is, but it was very confusing then because this was the early 70s, mm. and uh, we were just really beginning to see real Burgundy in Britain because of mm. Britain joining Europe, and I just wanted to learn more about it, and I thought six months in Burgundy would do it, and then I ended up spending six years there. started off teaching English and translating and generally starving, and one day various people kept saying you need to meet this woman called Becky Wasman, she's a broker. And I I had this very um pretentious thing of avoiding Anglophones. One of the reasons I didn't wasn't in Bordeaux, but Bordeaux was full of Brits. Hmm. And I didn't want to meet English speakers in Burgundy. Hmm. But you know, she was American, and people said Me, you should meet her. So one day I called her and, and we had lunch. And she said, Are you um are you related to Peter Joseph? And I said, No. She said, oh, yes, because someone called Peter Joseph tried to stab my husband. <laughs> and we started off on her was, a, was a, an artist, and we started off on that basis, and she actually paid me to go and A take her customers around to growers and B um, to scout out new producers. And one little story which I still love was a, a, a buyer from Chicago, and we'd been to Comte I mean, I used to go to Comte Lafond once twice, three times in a week, sometimes. And we'd been to Comte Lafont. we were going to Michelot We saw something later on. And we had another appointment. We pulled up outside this modern house in Mercer a bit late and he said, Do we have to do this? Who is this guy? And I said, Well you know, he's new and Becky and I think he's good. Well well we couldn't we just skip this one. And I said, No, that would be rude. Anyway, that was Kosh Dury. And so I can't remember what he bought or didn't buy. But, you know, if he didn't, he should be he, – he's probably ruining the day.
0: And and how did you sort of morph into wine journalism? Because your mother was a journalist, wasn't she?
1: She was. She did other things after that. I mean, weirdly, she had a business um, making hats. Apparently, the Queen Mother used to wear them. And in those days, the feather hats – and you need feathers for hats, and they used to buy bags full of stuffed birds, which are probably worth a fortune today. And pluck the feathers off the hat, off the birds to put on the hats. <laughs> well, discard anyway, the,
0: discard the bird, right? <laughs> so she,
1: that my other my, her office was above um, Dollamore's wine cellar or whatever in a little muse in London. So I grew I, as a young kid. There were the smells of wine bottling being done below, and the, and the sulphurs. that was another introduction to wine. Um, but I always wanted to write, not necessarily about wine. And when I was living in Burgundy. Um, i thought i'd write a book about burgundy then a man called anthony hanson wrote the book i should have written and i stopped doing it um and but i was thinking about that i rang a magazine in london called wine and spirit because there was an article i'd been told i should read and the editor a woman called jances robinson who was her her first never heard of it she didn't
0: go very far did she
1: she was my first editor and i wrote an incredibly boring piece about wine labeling law for the trade magazine she was writing for and then um, a year or two later I was in the um, Beaujolais Nouveau dinner at um, evening at Druin and had very little money at the time and I met this guy who said oh I'm thinking of starting a consumer wine magazine would you like to do it he didn't know me at all and didn't know what I could do and I said yes please came back to Britain worked as a breakfast waiter uh, for for a while in London because um, I didn't want to go on the dole but I didn't have any money while sort of preparing it and he didn't do it, but a woman called Catherine McWerter, who was Janss Robinson's successor, introduced me to her publisher, and to Oz Clark and to Charles Metcalf. And those three introductions
0: changed my life. Because you ended up editing wine magazine, right?
1: With Charles Metcalf, we launched the first uh, wine magazine, which was called What Wine. And we did a thousand we tasted, wine. and our rules in those days was anything Decanter would do, we wouldn't. <laughs> And so uh, the counter would stick a bottle of Bordeaux on its uh, cover every every month, and we would put a girl with a funny hat with corks around it and do Australian wine. I, I mean, remember that cover. Yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> – we, we really were trying to do something new. Um, we didn't succeed in it, but it, but it was um, – well, put it this way, we didn't manage to get lots and lots of ordinary people buying a wine magazine.
0: Yeah. But it was fun. I mean, they were exciting times, weren't they? I mean, I, I, you called it the summer of love for wine. I mean, I just – Am I being kind of a bit nostalgic about it? I mean, I was slightly after you, but I was there when that that period of expansion was happening in the UK wine trade. Do you think we're looking back at it with too much nostalgia in a sense?
1: I have kids aged 17 and 19, so I'm very careful about saying the good old days. But I think there was a moment, just as there was a moment where television went from black and white to colour and when the Mm -hmm. first computers came. I think AI today, you know, there's going to be a moment where AI is no longer interesting. Wine suddenly, between I'd say 85 and 2000, was on television, it was on the radio, mm. there was an odd bins on every high street, and it was genuinely exciting in Britain. And I think, importantly, people used to fly into Britain, the London Wine Trade Fair, from all over
0: the world to find mm. out what was happening here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you also, you remember all the, all the chains we've lost just in high streets. You, know, you look at Augustus Barnett and Davison's and Fuller's and Victoria Wine and um, Thresher, you know, all those things were, were making, were, were all selling good wine. I mean, they were I, more ambitious in those days, weren't they? they I think we well.
1: lost 4,000 shops, but more importantly, I think the supermarkets were competing with those shops. So mm. the level was much higher um, yeah. and there were lots of wine guides. It was, there was just a buzz and I just think you, you, one was lucky to be around and alive at that time
0: yeah and how did the international wine challenge
1: come about we did a tasting early on in 1984 we did a taste of english wines against the wall against the world which was a bit um, novel because there weren't very many and we got a few tasters any taste with a foreign name in london <laughs> who could get <laughs> was to, t- to see what a bus, of but we had Jansis, i think and we, we had a few a few serious people and we did this tasting blind very seriously and the english wines did incredibly well they were all still wines mm-hmm. in those days and i mean it surprised us very much and there were questions asked in parliament and should should english wines be helped and so on and we had chosen the wines from the other countries And then I started getting calls from other countries saying, well, you can't run events like this. We need a proper competition. And so we started it with 50-odd wines of that first one. Then it went to 200, then 400. I mean, it was doubling every year for a while, which thank goodness it stopped doing. But we got to about 10,000, and we were then the biggest wine competition in the world. And it was an extraordinary uh, experience. And then I took it to um, India, China, Russia, Vietnam, Thailand, Poland, Japan. I mean, if there was a country in the world where you could actually sell a (laughs) bottle of wine, I went there with it. And that taught me a huge amount about Mm. um, the way people viewed wine in other places.
0: I mean, do you regret that you didn't make more money out of it? It was your idea, you
1: know? I was employed. I mean, I think, you know, in, in anything, you know, there, there, I'm sure the people who work for Apple or work for any big company. The publishers gave me the chance to, to do something, and we had great fun doing it. So, mm. no, um, if I'd invested in it myself, now I'm investing in making wine. Mm. If, I, if I succeed or fail, it's down to me, and mm. I'll make from it or, or not.
0: I mean, were you surprised by its success in a sense, the IWC?
1: I think, again, back to that summer of love, I think it, it as Parker did in America, I think it filled a vacuum. People mm-hmm. were very confused about wine, and some kind of seal of approval uh, was very useful. Mm-hmm. I just wonder whether blind
0: wine tasting still has a role to play in the wine world. I mean, you know, as much as I did, you know, I think luxury brands are much more wary these days of putting wines into blind tastings than they were even in the, in the 80s and 90s, yeah?
1: Look, I think um, we benchmark the wines I'm involved with. And I, I really believe in blind tasting for benchmarking. Um, I'm involved in a in a competition in Germany called Mundusvini, and we do there the, we do blind tasting there. Obviously, <coughs> however, I do question its validity in the big picture when you really consider that when people buying people buy wine, they mm. know where it came from, they know mm. what it costs, they know the label. These are all factors that are as important to them as the pure quality. And so you see that, you know, wines that we were giving trophies to don't necessarily sell Mm -hmm. and wonderfully packaged wines that got bronze medals actually do very well.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, maybe it wasn't the game changer we thought at the time.
1: I think it helped. And I was involved, as you were, in wine competitions in other countries. I think it helped raise standards, mm. um, just as I think Parker did. Whether we agree with his styles or not is not the point. Yeah. People were coasting away on reputations mm. from years before that they mm. could no longer do.
0: And we've some, maybe gone back to those days, in a sense, haven't we? The people are coasting on those reputations again, especially in the fine wine world.
1: I think there's a certain amount of that. But having said that, those people who say hey, scores don't matter anymore, mm. they do. Mm. And, you know, there are some very good people, um, the Jane Ansons mm. uh, of, this, of this world are tasting wines, and they're scores. yours, mm. you know, these these are scores that count.
0: Mm. Well, that's good to know. I hope so, anyway. I mean, you also read a national newspaper column for the Sunday Telegraph in the 80s, 90s. I think you were there till, what, about 2000 and one or yeah, two thousand
1: and one. And that taught me a lot. So when I started in the back in the days of the hotel, what I learned there was how frightened people were of wine. Hmm. And I still think that's true. Um and when I was at Telegraph, I realized that what people were interested in certainly the readers of that newspaper was bargains. Hmm. Um I was writing what I thought was were lovingly honed. Uh, pieces about Jean-Pierre with his beard and his old de chevaux and the wine he made. And the my the sub-editor or the editor of my section would come back and say, "No, what we want is what's on offer at Sainsbury's this week. Mm. And I was yeah. thinking, no, really, do I have to do that? And they said, no, that's what our readers want. Mm. And to be honest, if you look at most wine columns these mm. days, that's what they get.
0: That's, and that's what they become, in a sense. I mean, the same thing happened to me. Yeah,
1: but I think that's what... But they would say to me, look, you know, so many people, the X number of people read your piece last week, mm. Mm. Y number of people read it this week, and, you know, you can get awards galore if you want for good writing, but the readers actually want... And I think, in- interestingly, there's a parallel, certainly in Britain, with restaurant criticism, where mm. people would read it for an entertaining thousand words mm. rather than an in-depth piece about the food and drink at that restaurant. Yeah, the
0: the bearnaise the sauce or something, or yeah. whatever, yeah. I mean... That wine revolution you've talked about, the summer of love. I mean, what happened to it? Why did it run out of of gas, as it were?
1: I think things do. I think I, I think you know relationships. You know whatever they are. I think it's very hard in anything to to maintain that kind of excitement and buzz. Mm. You know, look at look at Apple as a company. Look at all sorts of things. Mm. There, there are moments where it, it's surfing. There's a wave, mm. and you can you can ride that wave. And you're lucky if that wave lasts a long time, and then you're very lucky if you find another wave. I mean, Apple, interestingly, rode the wave of of desktop computers and then Mm. rode another wave, um, if you like, with with, with iPhones and watches Mm. and so on. But they can't go on, just go on riding the wave of the iPhone or riding the wave of the desktop computer.
0: I mean, do you see a wave now? I mean, I just wonder, for example, about, about your, your ideas about, about influencers. I mean, is that is that a wave where wine communication is concerned?
1: Um, I think influencers, I mean, we, we, we are so good at thinking that wine is different to everything else. I don't think it is. I think people are influenced about wine in the way that they're influenced you're talking about influence, about cosmetics and clothes and so on, um, they relate to people. And um, a lot of people hate the idea of celebrity wines. Hmm. Um, they don't mind celebrity perfumes. They don't mind celebrities being associated with advertising watches. Hmm. I think that we need to, in any circumstance, you need to get to your audience, and you need hmm. to use a language and a platform um, that, that, that that actually gets them. And Marshall McLuhan. Um, the, the medium is the message. Mm. Uh, back in the day, we had people like you and me who'd done quite a lot of work on learning about wine and mm. writing, hopefully, good good prose. Today, there are people who've really, they're quite excited about wine. Um, they're, they're very good at, at, at performing, mm. very, the rest of them. And they have resonance. And I don't think we should um, mock that. And I also say something controversial, which is that, I mean, some of these people are being paid um, to promote mm. the wines they're talking about, which I think you and I might well raise our eyebrows at. But mm. let's be honest, when you and I were wine critics in for, for newspapers, we were getting free trips to places. Mm. And we were invited, and the places that didn't invite us, we didn't have the money to go and pay to mm. visit some of those regions. So we weren't really quite as squeaky clean. Um, As 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 we like to claim. I mean, you you now, for example, your reports, you are paying your way to go and spend time in these regions, Mm. um, for which I have huge respect. That, you know, we weren't doing enough of that, Mm. in all honesty. Mm. You've also written a lot of very good books about wine. I just wonder which one makes you most proud, looking back at it it's a good question it's funny that the, the very first book uh, you, you always remember the first one don't you um the wine list was funny because guinness publishing called me very soon after i'd started the sunday telegraph saying and that's back to the summer of love yeah. um let us do a wine book and we did a book of lists because it was guinness and it had lots of lists of, of premier crew and and grape varieties and every country in the world it had albania in it and zimbabwe so but it also had the world's first nude wine tasting uh, it had the furthest <laughs> cork had ever flown it had the taste <laughs> the wine tasting that, that with, with no wine it was a fun book and i really loved lots of little cartoons and so on well, and it,
0: just, incidentally where was the nude wine tasting
1: in america i don't know why but it was uh, there were a lot of those things and then later on um and, and it, it back again so the, to the to the, the summer of love was the uh, sainsbury's paid oz clark or oz clark's publisher to do a, a very good book on wine great book on wine because mm. um, they just done one on food and i then um, entrepreneurially, I guess, went to um, Tesco with the, the publisher, with the, my, my friend from Guinness, uh, and independently, we self published a wine bite, a big 256 page, lots of color mm-hmm. recipes, all sorts of things on wine, which Tesco's bought 35,000 copies of and put on its shelves, hardcover book for £4.95. It was a great bargain, it won lots of awards and it sold like cold cakes <laughs> and it sold like cold cakes in the wine department in the book book department it sold like cold cakes in the wine department and, and then they cake redu- department. and then they reduced <laughs> the price to £2.95 which made it the most incredible bargain
0: and you it sold that cold t- case. <laughs>
1: and so what was interesting was that I know you know, you say my book wasn't very good. All of those supermarkets stopped publishing books. Yeah. People people's interest in wine, I always say, people I mean I sit next to somebody at a dinner party and they're oh, you write about wine or you know about wine or whatever. They want some information about wine in the same way that they might want information about the film industry if I said I was a stunt man, which mm. I've tried and never really managed convincingly um but you know basically my point is that they oh how do you do your stunts etc mm-hmm. etc do they the next day go and buy a book about stunts do they um look online about stunts? no they had their dose of mm-hmm. stuntman stuff over dinner and mm. that I think is true in wine, and it's something I think most of us have got to get better at, mm. of giving people. I always say most people want to know about wine in the way that I want to get fit. In other words, I want to wake up tomorrow morning without having had to do any running or exercise <laughs> or diet. I just want it to happen. You and to I think a lot you want of people own body in the yeah. I think pack. I think a lot of people would like to wake up tomorrow knowing more about wine, but yeah. they don't want to do
0: any work for They're it. Put in the work. Yeah, you stopped being a full time wine writer in two thousand one, but you, you still write about it a lot. You know, for mining. And, and, and occasionally for my site, indeed. I mean, I just wonder if there's a bit of you that's still a journalist at heart. Oh, I think that I think actors,
1: lawyers, journalists. I think it's it's in the DNA, mm-hmm. or at least if the, the ones that are half good. Um, and I'm half good. Uh, is, is essentially you 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 want to know the who, what, when, where, why? And I I, I crossed the line from being um, a critic where the why for me was um, why did this wine taste the way it did was what was the soil what was the Mm. winemaking all those sort of things and then because I wanted to start to make wine I decided I couldn't be a critic anymore but the why of why people buy this wine rather than that wine became part of the picture Mm. and that fascinated me and still fascinates me so the two things why does it taste this way could it taste different and why does he or she buy this one rather than that one and so now um since 2005 2006 actually i've been writing a business column for a magazine called miningers Mm -hmm. which i helped to launch and my job there on a weekly basis is to try and look at the wine industry a little differently and just to get well more particularly help other people raise some questions in their minds saying well what if why not
0: Yeah, I like that. I mean, you've always been something of an entrepreneur. You talked about the Tesco's book that you did. And I think of you sometimes as being a sort of Catherine wheel of ideas just flying out from you. I just wonder what's the difference between an idea that works and one one that doesn't? I mean, how much of it is luck? And maybe give us a a couple of examples of ideas of yours. You thought, I don't understand why that didn't work. And others that have worked where you thought, don't understand why that did work.
1: Okay, I think the two answers, um, you know, the quality idea the, and the skill uh, you can question, but I think luck and timing, mm. um, luck, timing, and commitment, the the mm. three things, perseverance. And in the things I haven't succeeded with, I could say at least one of those has been probably mm. um, wrong. Um, we started... Um, we started a wine called Greener Planet as an organic, sustainable brand in 2007 after the, or 2009 after the, the crash. I think that was a wrong product. I think Greener Planet's not a great name for a wine, for example. So there, whatever we'd done might not have worked. Um, on the other hand, we, uh, at another stage, we started with some other friends, um, a wine sorbet. And we got that into Harvey Nichols, we got that in, into Harrods, we got that onto British Airways first class. Um, it was delicious. I mean, really adult ice cream. It was a too early because mm. people in those days said, "Oh, ice creams uh, for kids." And a lot of places Harganars existed, but there wasn't the, the luxury ice cream um, sector there is today. But secondly, we didn't really carry on with it. It, it mm. wasn't doing well enough, and we said, no "That's the perseverance." Then, That's the <laughs> perseverance. So timing was wrong. But mm. if your time timing's wrong, you definitely need perseverance, and even if the timing's right, you need the perseverance. So, um, you know, I've learned over the years, but if you don't, I think one of the other stories there was quite fun when the internet was new. I started something called Wine School, an online wine school. I thought was really going to work, and and it didn't, and I couldn't get any um, any real money for it, whatever. And I, but I, I was beginning to, I think I might re re re, re do some more work on it. And I sat on a plane talking to a very attractive woman, and trying, you know, we asked what you did, and I just mentioned my wine school project. And um, then I didn't hear from her again. I thought you know, we'd exchanged emails, and I just sent her a note saying I hope you're well or whatever. And then she sent me. An I a curt note back saying, "I visited your, your your site. It wasn't what I expected." And then I went and looked, and somebody I, I'd failed to up to, to to pay my annual fee or whatever, and it had been stolen by a porn site. <laughs> And uh, the, the point was, that the brilliance of this was that the people, that the porn people, they're, 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 anyone will tell you that if you want to, do, to be good in business and community, follow the porn guys. They know it really, they, they know all of it. And they would worked out that if you um, register things like wine school hmm. People would actually look generally looking for, for for wine school, and a lot of them statistically might be men. Say fifty percent of the men, or forty percent men, and some of those, when they get to the porn site, may hang around <laughs> the wine school. <laughs> so porn so, and so uh, yeah, that was. I can't say why that failed, but it, it failed. No.
0: I mean, since two thousand five, as you said, you've also been a wine producer with this brand called Le Grand Noir. Just where, is it, where does it come from, and, and, and which market or markets does it sell in? Well, two things. When we
1: started, when I um, when Wine Magazine, the International Wine Challenge was sold, I had the opportunity to do something different, and I thought, why not make wine? Because I was interested in, in why that um, the whole question, of why some wines worked and some didn't. Mm. Didn't have the money to go and buy a vineyard, and I knew too many people with vineyards who were struggling. So I thought, mm. don't do that. My first aim, and I still think it would be worth doing, would be to make a really good um, branded Bordeaux. I think there should be a Merton Chandon. Hmm. quality of Bordeaux. And I don't think Mouton Cadet does that, for Hmm, example. So, um, but it was too hard. Dealing with the Bordeaux was a nightmare. Mm. And so um, they didn't want to be helpful in the making. And when I talked to the potential supermarket buyers and others, they didn't want it either. So um, we didn't do it. Um, but I had this other idea of could we make a new world wine in um, France? There weren't any brands of that kind. Mm. And um, we came up with the idea of uh, um, varietal wines from Languedoc and found these wonderful partners with 6,000 hectares in Minervois. And we said, right, we're going to do a Chardonnay Viognier and a Cabernet Syrah. And this was 2005. And at the time, people said, you're crazy. Hmm. You really are. Nobody's going to buy it. You'll go bust. And so we were the black sheep. Hmm. And we were going to be called Mouton Noir. We were briefly called Mouton Noir with the black sheep on it. And then we got a letter from a chateau in Bordeaux who didn't like that. And Hmm. so (laughs) So we then became um, Le Grand Noir, the big black. Hmm. And we've been that. We're now 3.8 million bottles in 65 countries. Wow. And interestingly, Le Grand Noir is doing surprisingly well in French-speaking Africa. Uh, which is our, our latest uh, export region. <laughs> I, I can't say why, but I, I'm not actually uh, complaining about that.
0: D- d- just, d- just tell me, do you think people are a bit too snooty about mass market brands sometimes, wine brands?
1: Yes, I get me very angry because what we discovered in the blind tastings, you, you talked about blind tastings earlier. Mm. Um, I remember Jacobs Creek and the quality of Jacobs Creek Riesling, for example. Mm. Blind, some of those wines were first class. And when I first went to Australia, and that was, after living in Burgundy, going to Australia was also like going from black and white to color in terms of the, the, the enthusiasm, the people there. Um, there's a huge amount of passion that goes into the best of those branded wines. I think Gerard Bertrand, my, my neighbor down the road in Languedoc, there are people like him who are really, really um, passionate about making good wine. I don't, I, look, Chateau Latour is a brand. Romani Conti is a brand um the, the thing about a brand is it doesn't have to be something in your supermarket uh, there are you talk about the iwc one com- competition there's an iwc watch and the only people who've ever heard of that are watch freaks mm. but it's a brand mm. and to me um if you're not a brand you're a commodity
0: so so a fine wine can be a brand
1: um, of course they are. Petrus is a brand. Angelus is a brand. Angelus is in James Bond. I mean, it behaves like a brand. Mm-hmm. I, I just really hate the idea of the wine industry um, getting snooty about brands, snooty about marketing. And the idea about, about is that make a good wine, it'll sell itself. Well, good news. Uh, well, sorry, not good news. Here's the news. Great novels, great movies don't sell themselves. People who make great movies or make any movies spend 50% on marketing the movie of the, of the budget of making the thing. Mm. And yet in wine, we think, oh, I'm just going to plant a vineyard, grow some grapes, and the world is going to beat a path to my door. It
0: mm. isn't. Mm. No, I think you're right. I mean, listen, you, you've been a wine critic, you're also a producer, and you, you're doing both in, in a sense. You're not really a critic, but you're a wine writer. I just wonder, what do you think the two camps can learn from each other? I mean, you've been successful at both. What can, what can a wine writer learn from a producer, and what can a producer learn from a wine writer? I think, to be honest, the people
1: I think we should all learn from a
0: sommeliers, and there's
1: a reason why they've actually become so successful in recent years because they are the, the, the psychologists of the wine world. They're mm. the people who are reading their customers and understand why Table 7 uh, is going to buy this wine and why, indeed, the same man or woman might buy one wine one day and a different wine on a different day. Mm. Um, I'm now – so Le Grand Noir is a wine that sells very well in – we've been in Gordon Ramsay's restaurants by the glass, which um, is Savoy Grill, but it's a, it's a supermarket. It's a, it's a mm. high-volume wine. I'm now making wine in Georgia um, called Kavshiri. Uh, and that's it's going to be pricier. It's a far more, it's a very different wine in its ambitions. It's going to be far more of a restaurant wine. And I have a very clear understanding in my mind that it's going to be a lot harder to persuade people to buy a Georgian wine made from mm. grapes they've never heard of in a place they don't know than to buy something with Chardonnay on the label from Southern mm. France. And I think wine critics need um, to combine their enthusiasm and their inquisitiveness. Um, with that understanding that the sommeliers have Mm. of who's going to want it and why they're going to want it.
0: What can producers learn from us? Anything, do you think, from wine critics?
1: I think producers... uh, The the great thing about the best wine critics is Mm. that they are always... They always have their eyes open for what's new, what's happening. Um, And I think too many producers don't. But even at the wine world, it's fascinating when I talk to people because now Mining is designed for readers across the world. Mm. Um, And I tell people in France what's happening in California or people in California, what's happening in New Zealand. Mm. We are so incredibly in our bubbles. Mm. So, you know, everyone's talking about Pet Nat. Very few people are talking about wine that's been aged in bourbon barrels. Well, Mm. whether or not you like the idea of wine that's been aged in a bourbon barrel, you need to know why there are 20, 30 million bottles of this being sold in Mm -hmm. America. Why my local Sainsbury's down the road here doesn't have any pet nat or any natural wines. It's got three different bourbon barrel wines that none of my friends as as wine critics are talking about. You don't have to to praise it or recommend it, but you need to know that it's there and why it's there. And understand it in a sense. And understand very quickly why are there bourbon barrel wines because in America and and elsewhere, a lot of people like bourbon. Mm. So they're getting a drink that tastes of bourbon that happens to be made from grapes. Which is not what a wine person
0: would imagine. W- would like, yeah. I mean, your Georgian project, as you said, is a is a joint venture. But you also do some consultancy. I know, uh, in various markets. I just want is there anyone you wouldn't work for on sort of ethical grounds? You just say, yeah, I'm really obvious, I mean, I mean,
1: obvious. I mean, obvious question. If you really mm. don't like the, the the if you don't like or don't trust the, the, the people, you don't work for them. But that doesn't mean to say that I wouldn't work for companies whose wines I don't necessarily like all of. Mm. Um, one of the people I have feel great kinship with, um, and huge respect for, Randall graham um is in a is doing a joint venture with gallo and i think nobody would have imagined that a few years ago and i've got you know it's going to be it's a way of him doing something really new and getting it out into the market um and i think being precious whether you're the the, the novelist who fails to get there to even pre- give their a uh, novel to a publisher or doesn't want to be published by this or that publisher get your book out there hmm.
0: And what makes a good consultant? I mean, is is it listening? Is it being decisive? Is it telling things I don't want to hear? I mean, what is it? But all of that,
1: I, I always say that, it, that, that, that if I came to your home or you came to my home, you could look and watch while I was preparing or we were preparing dinner, and you'd say, "Why do you keep your knives there? Why do you keep your plates there?" Mm. And you said, "Well, we did that because when we moved into the house, we." and you see you save so much time if you put the plates there and the knives there mm. your first time of talking to anyone or listening to, listening to them or watching them you can actually anyone can mm. probably make a huge difference um, to any business what happens after that is, a, is another question but most of us i think all of us whether you're a writer i have to say that you you've edited me I, i've edited you um i've always benefited from great editing yeah, I've got a book coming out this this year where I'm paying – I'm self-publishing, but I'm paying a very good editor um, quite a lot of money to actually mm. edit it. Mm. And I think wine winemakers don't have editors very often.
0: Well, I think that's part, part of the problem with the internet now is that there are people publishing blogs who've never been edited in their lives. And, yeah. and I mean, without being snotty about it, I think it shows very often.
1: We all need – in our lives – we all need editors. We, you know, going out for dinner on a Saturday night, you turn around to your partner and say, does this tie look good or you know, does mm-hmm. this look okay? I think that the wine producers need to be looking outside their own um, fences or the walls around their vineyards. And as writers, we need to be looking outside the, our own worlds. So, you know, we all get it wrong. And sometimes yeah. we need somebody who tells us why we've got it wrong or how we've got it wrong yeah. and then how to get it right. To me, yeah. the exciting thing, the people I've liked best, when you say to a, a wine producer, um, you know, what do you think your best vintage is. And the, mm. the great line of, well, hopefully the next one.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. Let's, let's look back over this amazing career you've had, and I've you know been along for the ride for some of it, uh, most of it, really. We've seen these huge changes in the 40-odd years that we've been writing about wine. What's going to happen in the next half century? Will the vineyards and the wines of the future be very different from what we're drinking now?
1: I think they already are, and I think we're not really paying enough attention. The fact that Rosé in France has gone from being... Horrible bronze, dry or sweet Anjou stuff that you drank on in the summer. It's now second most popular style in France. And mm. if you continue the graph, which won't work, it would overtake uh, red to be the most popular style. Um, I've talked about the bourbon barrel wines, but you know, you've got in America, you've got fruit flavored wines, you've got CBD wines. I think the the, the lines are blurring, and. Um, what we think of as wine today is going to be a much broader, and that, that would include obviously the the natural wines that went on the, on the horizon. so I, I wouldn 't have the temerity to try to predict really where it 's going to go, but mm. I think that the word I think we always have a problem with the word wine it 's a short word in most languages, mm. and it has to carry a huge amount of weight, where food, mm. um, everything from a sandwich uh, to a souffle is food but you know that a souffle is a very different uh, piece of work you eat a sandwich with your hands a souffle with a spoon etc um well with wine it's 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 a bottle of the cheapest 30 cents a litre bulk air end from spain mm. or it's a bottle of romani conti they come in the same shape bottle and quite possibly with a cork and you have them from the same kind of glass um, and we think it's all wine and I think that's a problem. And I think that, that over not. time we are yeah. going to have to – we are going to see uh, greater differentiation. And we're already seeing it in the sense that quite well, – I don't like the expression particularly, but fine wine. Mm-hmm. Um, prices are going up because it's rare. There are, there are more and more people. The, the rich are getting richer. There aren't that many of them, but they are definitely getting richer. And, and there are more of them. And they will buy the, the top stuff. And to them, a $1,000 for a bottle isn't anything to worry about. And I think cheap wine is going to disappear. Mm. Or it should disappear, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't make sense to be making 30-cent wine, or it's only going to be made by big producers who are very geared up to do it. So they will be the easy jet of the of wine industry. But yeah. there are far too many producers, in so where I'm in Languedoc or, or in Georgia or elsewhere, small producers making wine that is actually too cheap. And the, that's the one thing I look back at my days as a wine critic And I was looking for bargains and I wasn't always thinking about why these wines were bargains and actually what that meant for the, the men and women who are making uh, I think that's very
0: true. And I think there's always a difference between cheapness, as it were, and value for money. You know, there's no reason why something that costs £50 pounds can't be value for money if, if, if you're looking at what goes into making it, right, and the cost of the grapes, for example.
1: There, there's a problem, you talk about the next 50 years, there's something that, again, isn't getting enough attention. 50% of the French wine industry, or French farmers in total, are due are of retirement age now. Mm. The next generation does not want to go out and make wine. Yeah. And, you know, I've pruned grapes in January. I've been out mm. in the vineyards in January and February in Burgundy. It's not fun. It's really not fun. And Burgundy, called- I, I always think
0: harvesting is not much fun either. I've done that twice and it's backbreaking. Well, Burgundy, A, you can
1: afford to pay people to do it, but B, nowadays they couldn't when I was living there, but B, um, you know, it, 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 there's all the glamour and so on. A small mm. vineyard, maybe. But mm. actually... Uh, If you're today in Languedoc and your father is selling wine for three or four euros a bottle, which is probably the trade price, Mm. and he looks around. Yeah, why do I want to do that if I can yeah. get a job doing something else
0: yeah you'd rather work somewhere else listen final question is you're unbelievably busy we've heard that at the beginning where you're flying off to one of these projects you've got I uh, just wonder how you relax and get away from the different bits of your job I know mean, you love music I've got lots of concerts with you I
1: do a lot of music I love photography I mean you and I overlap in a lot of these sort of things um, I don't do enough exercise I go a bit, bit of walking around uh, around here Bike, biking sometimes far too uh, f- not as frequently as I should yeah. um, but actually think unfortunately i have this thinking is a bit of an exercise for me i love once i and people who know me know know that like I, once i get the end of a string and start pulling on it i find it hard to to give up and so um you know there is there's the part of me that really and it's not i think just to finish up on this i think wine is very 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 special Mm. But it's also not very, very special, because you can look at it like other things. And Mm. I think we'd all do uh, well to think, well, what if this bottle of wine were a book or a Mm. movie or or a shirt? Um, How would we react to it then?
0: Yeah, and I think that, that, that if you do deep dive into it, there's as much there. You know, it's an ocean. You can keep going, and you must probably never reach the bottom. But you're also right. A lot of people just want a bit of windsurfing, don't they? They just want to skim along the surface, and I think that's fine. I mean, I think we both agree on that. But,
1: but wine—the great thing about wine—is people. I mean, you know, we're sitting here talking about this. If I made—if I was in the ball bearing business, you know, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> and I've been incredibly lucky in my life to have met so many um, people from the from the um, Philippe de Rothschilds yeah. and Max Schubert of Grange and, um, you know, some of the great names of the past, yeah. but also lots of little tiny little producers. And I felt really, really blessed by having met and talked to and tasted with those people. And I don't think there, is, there are many other businesses where or many other sectors where one would have, and you know, you do this yeah. um, all the time, where we'd have that kind of of uh, fun and and intellectual
0: um, fulfilment. Thank you, Robert. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you for sharing. Amazing life you've had in, in mine, really, over the last 40-odd years. Thank you. I hope it's... I
1: I, I hope... I'm, I, it seems like a long time. I hope... I'm doing a book on looking back, but I really hope to have a few more years yet to come. Well, we're
0: going in a it. Thank you, and see you Take soon. care. Thank you. Fascinating man, Robert. You can see why journalism is part of his DNA. Next week on Cork Talk... I guess, as the fine wine investment analyst, Sarah Denese. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.